Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. My name is Jason Kebler, and this week's episode is about the Trump presidency. I've rounded up motherboard contributors, editors, and staff writers to talk about the powers that incoming President Donald Trump will have. We're not trying to make big prognostications here, but we are going to talk about the roles that the president plays in directing various areas of the United States. To set this all up, I wanted to talk to our editor-in-chief, Derek Mead, who has directed where he wants our coverage of Donald Trump to go. We're just going to do this back to back to back, go from topic to topic. It's not in any real order, but these episodes will be published online on our SoundCloud individually. So if you are interested in only, say, certain topics, you can check it out there. I have Derek, our editor-in-chief here, and we are going to talk about how Motherboard is going to cover the Trump presidency and administration. When you got back from Portugal earlier this week, you had a meeting with us and it was very inspiring. And you told us, hey, why we're doing this and B, how we're going to do it. So can you tell me again what you told me yesterday? Totally. There's two things here. One is that covering a Trump presidency should be like covering any presidency. I mean, the president is the most powerful person on earth still. And that means that it's our job to be questioning everything that they do. It's very easy for any president to give a statement or say something and have it not necessarily be correct. I mean, it's a lot harder to prove that they weren't or to say that they weren't and get an equal platform and voice. So our obligation to our readers always is to say, hey, let's make sure that we're able to defend their interests and their futures against anyone in that seat. What is a little bit different about Trump coming in is that we know already that he is a avid liar and is probably going to lead one of the least factually based presidencies that we've ever faced. And it's also probably going to be basically quicksand of reality is what we're going to have to deal with in terms of just constant backtracking or saying, I said this, but I didn't say this, or I didn't say this, I actually meant this, or my words, don't read what my words say, just see what my actions are, all this stuff. It's going to be a confusing morass that we've already seen for the last year and a half and throughout his entire career. Because he is a smart guy. He's a media savant. He knows exactly how to manipulate uh, media. And he knows exactly how to weasel his way out of just about anything that he says. So... The three things that we have to rely on, and this is what I was telling people, are one, remembering that there are actually facts in the world, which seems like a fairly basic thing for a journalist. But when you're dealing with someone who just throws so many smoke bombs into the pantheon of truth, it can be hard to figure out which way to go forward. So the main thing is what I want us to be doing is I'm tired, and this has been way before the election, tired of dealing with takes and opinions and nonsense out there because so many people have things to say about stuff that doesn't actually isn't actually rooted in reality. So the main thing we're doing is saying, let's make sure that everything that we're covering is rooted in very basic truths and facts. And that's what we can rely on. And that's what we'll always keep hammering on. Because we've gotten to the point in the internet where you can find any truth that you want. And uh, most of them are incorrect. So I think it's our utmost goal for and our utmost 
obligation to our readers to ensure that we can keep pointing towards actual concrete facts where they lie. The second thing is knowing that we have an incredible position of power and one that we don't totally know what the actual interests or obligations are that the Trump administration may have. It's essential for us to remain oppositional. Um, and what that means is not necessarily just simply attacking Trump for the sake of attacking him. Like that's easy and thousands of people are going to do that every day for no reason or perfectly good reasons as well. The main thing is to say we can't ever take someone who has that much power, take their statements at face value. We have to say, is this actually real? Are the policies you're promising actually going to be good for us? And how do we actually protect the things that we hold dear and the things that are crucial to our future as humans and as Americans and as people on this earth from wishy-washy nonsense and backroom maneuvering? So the only way to do that is to say from to start from a position every single time, is what the administration is saying or promising actually true? Or what is it that they're actually going to do? And that's essential. The last thing, and this is the most basic thing, but it ties into the other two, is we have to absolutely be listening to people and not talking. It's the obvious job of every journalist, and every journalist knows this, that their job is to listen and not just talk. But it's also easy to forget because there's so many things going on at once. So our main goal and what I am challenging all motherboarders to do for you, our readers and listeners and viewers, is to just say, Let's be incredibly focused on the things that we actually find important, the things that are most influential to our future on this planet. And then we have to go and actually talk to people out on the ground about what is actually happening. There's this huge problem in media, and the media knows it, but they're still addicted to it, of trying to like read tea leaves and be soothsayers and being like, well, this guy gave a speech yesterday, but halfway through he like blinked at one point. So is he lying? I have no idea, but here's a thousand words on it. Like None of that stuff matters anymore. What does matter is talking to the people who are actually in power, the people who are actually movers and shakers, the people who are actually affected by those decisions, rather than trying to sit in an office and just write a bunch of stuff based on some things we saw on Twitter. I think Motherboard has always been good at that, because that's something we consciously have always avoided, whether it's talking about Obama's insane drone war, or the NSA spying on all Americans, or all this other stuff. I mean, this is in our DNA. But now it's more important than ever for us to ensure that we can go out and and find out what's really happening and share it with you. Because the end goal for all of our readership is to ensure that you're better informed about what's influencing our future so you can be better informed in making decisions in response or in support of that. We all want to have tomorrow be better than today. The only way to do that is to have the information around what's changing that. You gave us a short-term mission, and that was to basically not prognosticate what Trump will do, but to basically list and explain what he can do by talking to the people within administrations and the people at nonprofit groups who are studying this sort of thing. Why did you want us to do that rather than guess what he's going to do? It's a week, not even a week since the election. Right? This is crazy. It's been a long week, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, I hope you're all still with, with us. And anyone who says they have any idea what the Trump administration is going to do or be like is making it up unless they're in the administration themselves. And even then, I don't think they know. So there's a lot of noise out there about just like, here's what we think could happen, or here's like what the plan is, or here's what this person's potential hire means for something else. 
we don't know what's going to happen yet, and it's too early. And I still, I don't think the administration does. So what I want to do is to look at what could happen, what is threatened, what the biggest impact is, and look at the promises that Trump has made, what he said he's going to do, and how that could affect, threaten, or positively impact all of the core issues that we hold dear, from the environment to privacy to security to connectivity and economic opportunity, everything that we hold that's important for future of our readers. Um, to look at those issues specifically. So we've already done a bunch of this, whether it's scientists concerned about losing funding from telecom worried about the end of net neutrality, like all the stuff that we're putting together is to say, let's look at what is at stake so that everyone has a clear idea of what the playing field is. That's what this podcast is. I mean, there's naturally going to be a little bit of prognostication based on the people he's hired and what he said, but we're trying to take a look at what his powers are because, you know, he has the keys to the nuclear codes, but he also has the keys to the FCC and to the NSA surveillance apparatus and to the drone program and to EPA, EPA yes, Department yeah. of the Interior and uh, you know, ed- yeah. education. I think the worst thing that anyone can do in any new presidency or anything is just to freak out or to be like, what the hell is going on or anything. The best thing to do is to look at things in as rational fashion as possible and say, here's what actually the stakes are. And then let's figure out how we want to respond to that. So that's right now. It's just kind of like getting the lay of the land. I have Becky Ferreira. Hello. Who is going to tell us what a Donald Trump presidency might mean for NASA and the U.S.'s space mission. Becky, what powers does a president have when it comes to to space? A lot of power. It's one of the areas that a president has the most power over. And also presidents tend to be really aggressive in using space policy as like a patriotic thing like Kennedy and, and Obama have. And the vision for space policy is drafted by the president in the White House um, and the executive branch and Congress is responsible for approving it. And normally they do approve the broad strokes of a president's vision for space. There hasn't been like a huge amount of pushback in the last 60 years on that. So he'll have a lot of power, it seems like. One thing I've noticed is that, uh, you know, NASA gets funded just like any other agency gets funded. And NASA starts all these sort of very long term projects like we've seen Orion and S- mm-hmm. uh, SLS. Has Trump indicated whether he wants to continue down the path we've seen with these sort of longer-term projects? I think there's a little bit of infighting a little bit on that right now because some of the people he's bringing on into his transition team are more friendly towards the idea of a moon program as opposed to a Mars program. There's some doubt over whether they want to invest in something like the Space Launch System or Orion, something that's really, really ambitious for NASA to do because he's in broad strokes, just said that private spaceflight should really be taking much more of the reins on that kind of stuff. So there isn't really a specific policy yet. In fact, like it's really clear that it hasn't been a priority until the last month to even think about that. So I wouldn't say that there's many like long-term projects that are totally safe. I, I would say, you know, things like that, like the James Webb or something like that are probably going to be fine. But um, stuff that's in the development phase right now, like early on, could easily be diverted. Has there been any push to change how NASA is funded to make it more of a long-term process so that any one president or Congress can't kill something that's been in the works for, you know, years and years? You know, I actually don't know that much about it, but it's something I would like to look into because obviously I think it would have implications for not just NASA, but also any kind of science field that requires decades in the making for some of its projects. The fact that uh, leadership changes by term limits in Congress and, and, and people can just 
axe programs. It really is not good for the long-term health of a publicly funded space program and has obviously created a lot of problems in the past in terms of people not getting the programs that they want. Obama suggested that he wants to go to Mars. Um, He Mm -hmm. just made this big speech earlier this year. Uh, Has there been any indication that Trump would want to, uh, despite the people he's put on his transition team? Yeah, they they have this idea that they want to do like a really long term. uh, They want to do by the end of the century, human manned spaceflight for the entire solar system. That's like their stretch goal. So they do they 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 show interest in it, but and and they definitely interest in like aggressive manned um, space exploration and uh, pushing out further into the solar system. Um, but it's just whether that will be, I, they, they really seem to be erring on the side of, uh, you know, SpaceX and other companies should be taking the role in terms of the infrastructure of that. And, and the op-ed that his main transition team guy, um, Robert Walker wrote last week really seems to focus on, you know, devaluing like the taxpayer side of it, like it's kind of giving, he, he mentions the idea that why should taxpayers really care this much about uh, funding NASA, which is kind of like uh, a little bit of a, a, you know, um, maybe a herald of things to come. So um, I don't know. It would be interesting to see if that if there really is a big fracture that is that's created by the by the private space flight industry being preferentially treated. I think the thing that might be interesting to point out is just the fact that if this focus on privatization and on the military side of space flight, which is kind of what the Trump administration seems to be shaping up to be prioritizing, that's going to create a very different space landscape than having a very public skin in the game, you know, taxpayer money is uh, in public investment in in space exploration. That's it's a departure that we haven't seen before. You're suggesting that maybe NASA would be more of like an advisor to commercial interests yeah. Rather than a space exploration agency itself. Yeah, and they and they do talk about, you know, the need for deep space exploration. One of the other big themes, which is not really surprising because it's a, it's been a Republican theme for a while, is that Earth observation should not be a part of NASA. And so they focus instead very much on this idea of like outwardly looking towards deep space exploration instead and that that should be NASA's role. There's been some talk of having all Earth observation programs go under NOAA instead of NASA, which has a vastly reduced budget to, compared to NASA. It's, a, it's going to be a weird landscape. <laughs> he didn't say much about space during the campaign. I know he made a couple comments, but as you said, there's not a whole lot of policy there yet, and, and now we're just starting to see what it might look like. Do you think NASA will suffer under Trump? Yeah, it seems like NASA will. I, I don't want to say broadly necessarily that um, space exploration will. May, maybe, you know, uh, you could argue private space exploration is the future, and that's where it should be going. And um, but I, I do think the idea of the of the leadership of a public funded um, agency is definitely in peril because he, you know, Trump in general um, has run on this idea of cutting budgets and and you know running things like a businessman. And, and he there's already been some sort of you know side eye kind of behavior in the in the op ed that Walker wrote towards the idea of. Um, relying too much on taxpayer funds for the for the space program. So that's, yeah, that's definitely going to affect NASA. It's going to affect their ability to do stuff that's seen, you know, to be in the public interest and not for a private profit motive. Do we have any idea who might head NASA under Trump? No. Could it be Robert Walker? Or do, we, do we have any idea? Maybe. Um, the other person uh, I think that was involved was Mark Aldridge, I feel like his name is. I could double check that. But he was the guy that was responsible for the faster, cheaper, better 
uh, kind of program of the 90s. And so maybe him, but um, yeah, Bolden is stepping down as administrator. So um, I'm not sure uh, there hasn't been any like solid person been floated yet, but those two men have been, uh, Walker and Eldridge have been on his transition team. So um, maybe one of them. And then also, you know, uh, Walker had a long relationship with Newt Gingrich too. So perhaps that like whole moon base thing will come back into play at some point. I know he wants he wants it and you know what if Newt wants to build that base that's that's okay with me oh my god Newt's colonies are coming back yeah that's amazing yeah one of the things that I think is just in general a a um you know a major issue is the idea of what role does the public play in space how much should the public be involved in space exploration and 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 you know the larger questions that arise from really really prioritizing uh private industry over uh, the government. I, I guess I've already touched on those things, but I think that is going to really affect how people interact with space and could, you know, create an, um, a lack of uh, public interest in, in space, you know, because those sort of discovery programs that NASA has really been great at um, crafting, uh, like New Horizons or, and, and recent stuff like that, that that's that's sort of what gets people excited about space. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if those kinds of things can keep going. They do seem to be very pro space and, and, and pro, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that American leadership in space is a huge part of American identity. And, um, so they don't seem to be backing away from that kind of, uh, a reputation or, a, or, a, a vision for space flight. Trump's probably biggest campaign promise was this promise to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. And we have the good fortune to have Brian Anderson, our features editor, who did an amazing uh, feature series package, etc., whatever you want to call it, called Borderlines. Brian, you just spent some time at the border. What do you think when you see a president like Trump? When I hear someone talking about fencing needing to be built on the border. I have to wonder if that person has ever actually been to the border because there's already quite a lot of fencing uh, along the U.S.-Mexico boundary. So today there's currently 700 miles of barrier. And if we say barrier, that could mean um, an actual wall, uh, a fence made of uh, sheet metal that the government collected and patched together, or it could be like waist-high barbed wire vehicle fences. So there's already like a bricolage, if you will, of barrier along the border. And all along when I've heard Trump talking about building a 2,000-mile-long barrier, I have to wonder if he knows that there is already hundreds of miles of barrier there to begin with. And it's questionable what sort of effect that has had on illegal immigration, and also uh, drug trafficking. And then you can get into the logistics of actually wanting to build a wall or rather fill in the 1,200 other miles that don't have a barrier. And the logistics would seem overwhelming, if not impossible, to pull off that sort of feat. What powers will Trump have unilaterally to control immigration into the United States? I think if you would want to build a truly solid wall all 2,000 miles, he would have to invoke some sort of eminent domain 
And then he would, of course, he's promised to leave Mexico with the tab to pull that off. And thus far, Mexico has been like, nah, we're not going to do that. So, I mean, I wish I, I had a better answer here, but it does sort of remain to be seen how politically he's going to pull this off. I, just, I, I don't understand really how it could work. He can put it on paper and say that he wants to build this barrier, but politically and uh, just from an engineering standpoint, I just can't wrap my head around what he's going to invoke here to, to pull it off. One thing that I've started thinking about is illegal immigration coming from the Mexican border is down or flat over the last decade or yeah. so. It's not increasing. It didn't increase under Obama. And there's a good chance that it will probably continue to decrease simply because the economic policies that Trump has put out suggest that the U.S. might go through some sort of economic hardship under his presidency. And we see that when the country goes through economic hardship, immigration declines. So do you see him, you know, declaring victory over decreased immigration numbers, whether or not that ends up being a negative for the country? Because most things suggest that immigration of any sort is good for the economy as a whole. And so I kind of see this going in a direction where immigration falls, and it has to do with the fact that we have a strong man president who had all this rhetoric and has terrible economic policies, and for that matter alone, regardless of any sort of enforcement issues. Yeah. To your point, immigration is down. There's fewer Mexicans coming into the U.S. than there are leaving. And, you know, these things don't shift overnight. So say for the next five or ten years here, say those numbers keep going down, or even if they just stay where they're at, I could certainly see Trump claiming that as a positive result of whatever sort of policy he's going to put in place. At the same time, Ian Grio, who's a fantastic Mexico City-based reporter, he wrote in the New York Times today about how Trump tearing up NAFTA, as he said he's going to do, that could very well put a whole hell of a lot of Mexicans out of work and at that point, who's going to stop them from saying, well, we have to pick up and, and go north and try to find work, which is what this has been about all along, in which case there would be more people trying to get into this country as a result of you know tearing up NAFTA. What are you keeping your eyes on over the next couple of months? I know you've commissioned some stories. What, what are they? We're going to be focusing on Trump's wall. If he can even pull it off and in whatever stage he pulls it off, how is that going to affect both drug trafficking activity on the border and what role does that play in the price of legal marijuana in the U.S.? And we're also going to be looking at the building of the wall itself, if in fact that does play out. So what contractors stand to gain here? 1,200 miles is quite a long distance. Um, and when I was along the border Earlier this year, I was talking to a couple of Border Patrol agents, and they were telling me that each mile of wall, be it like you know a primary wall or a secondary fence, each mile of that costs an estimated $1 million to build. And then there are the costs of upkeep, and you're going to need people to be monitoring this wall literally 24-7. 
Um, and if you turn away, people are going to take it apart for, uh, you know, use the scrap metal to do whatever with. Those are two key areas we're going to be looking at, the building of the wall itself and how, if it goes up in some way, shape, or form, that's going to affect drug trafficking activity and also just the way people move over and through and under walls as they have historically. Nicholas de Leon, you are here to talk to me about Trump's trade wars. Yeah. It's not normally a topic motherboard covers as we're not an economy website, but trade is important and trade brings us goods such as electronics from China. So what are we going to talk about? Well, I believe Adam Smith once said trade is the lifeblood of nations. So it's, it's, yeah, it's critically important. And, and where Motherboard gets into it is because speaking to my section specifically, we write a lot about consumer electronics and all this type of stuff. Uh, and most, if not all of that, is made in China. Trump's campaign was uh, – it, it was what it was uh, and we'll see what he actually delivers on. But one of his big campaign promises was he's going to bring back jobs by renegotiating trade deals and slapping tariffs on stuff – imported from China because, you know, they're manipulating the currency and they're just not being fair traders. So Trump's going to fix that by making all their stuff that much more expensive to bring it to the U.S., which you're not going to find a whole lot of support for that anywhere, really. Where it kind of gets into us is that if he does that, the iPhone that you buy, it costs $600. If Trump wants to, and he does have actually a fair bit of leeway to like unilaterally impose uh, tariffs on imports, uh, your iPhone is not going to cost $600. It's going to cost that much more. In my reporting, it's it's not even so much the fact that uh, you know that things aren't assembled here it, uh, because Motorola in 2013 they tried to assemble the Moto X in Texas. It was just too costly. It's more the fact that China has just the infrastructure to manufacture all of these things in scale that we're used to them. So it's not even that he's going to bring back manufacturing jobs by slapping on tariffs. It's that it's pretty much impossible to build these things in the United States. Uh, so just saying that. Uh, but yeah, basically it could result in way more expensive things for the average U.S. consumer, which is not great, not, not good. During the campaign, he said that he would force Apple to build the iPhone in the United States. Apple has not shown any inclination to do that, but I would assume Trump doesn't have any powers to force that, does he? I don't believe Trump has the power to force Apple to tell them where and when they can build their products. A lot of the materials found in these phones, they're just found in places where like China has the mineral rights, like these rare earth minerals. China is the one digging these things up. So it's not really as simple as flipping a switch and all of a sudden, A, not only are your iPhones assembled in the U.S., but they're also like fully manufactured in the U.S. It's a nice campaign thing to say built in the USA and all that, but it's kind of the situation where that ship has sailed and it would just basically be impossible to make that happen. One thing that I've been reporting and have written about a little bit is Trump talks about bringing back manufacturing jobs to the United States and he wants to do that by closing borders and making trade harder and imposing tariffs. And one thing that we've seen is that jobs that have been offshore to places like China and India are increasingly being automated themselves. So it's unclear whether those jobs even still exist. And even if they do still exist, it's unclear how much longer they will exist for. Is that something that you've been looking into as well? Like, if Trump is able to bring back these manufacturing jobs, how long will those manufacturing jobs last? And if it's not China, what's stopping other countries from, from competing on that same level? It just seems right, like right, you right. can't be an insular country in right. this day and age. Well, I mean, we're, we're already seeing that with, with companies like Samsung. You know, 10 years ago, China was the 
was cheap labor. Now it's it's getting a little bit more expensive. So you're seeing folks uh, manufacture things in Vietnam. It's just it's kind of a, a a race to the bottom where they're just going to keep chasing lower and lower wages. And that's if you want people making these things. To your earlier point of automation, I used to have a professor in college. And he used to talk a lot about obsolescence and jobs going away. And he used to joke, you know, there used to be a business where companies would deliver ice to restaurants and deliver ice to your home. There's no ice delivery business anymore. Obviously, you could say, you know, horse and buggy and those things, things change, things go away. So the idea of clinging on to the assembly line where, you know, you had 3,000 people in a town doing three eight-hour shifts a day, like that's not set in stone. And there's, there's really – it's not – I know it's 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 easy for me to say because I'm not necessarily in that, but it's it's I don't know how 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 useful it is to kind of like cling to that idea of this was when everything was great. Let's cling on to that being the epitome of what we can do. Uh, it's it's it it goes back to something I said the other day where I don't know that in this country we really have a discussion really openly about like what people like what do people want out of their lives like do they do they want a job so they can so they can buy a 4K TV do they want a job because they they take pride in what they do and do they want do they you know do they, do they just want money then is that case something like a basic income uh, a solution for this. Yeah, that's something I, I want to talk about because we did talk about this on the podcast last week and you brought it up. But earlier this week, the Council for Foreign Relations or Council on Foreign Relations had an event uh, discussing how automation and artificial intelligence would affect the economy. And James Manika, who is an analyst for McKinsey, which McKinsey is like one of these giant conglomerate uh uh, consulting firms that sort of makes the world go round, but you don't really hear about them. Like they're when you think about like capitalism, that that's McKinsey. Like they're they're the uh, like invisible hand that controls a lot of things. And he said straight up that exact same thing. Um, I need to pull the quote. I, I was transcribing as we went, but basically said we need to reconsider the uh, idea that jobs is what defines us. Like they went through 800 occupations, uh, identified 2000 different tasks that the average worker does, or just workers in 800 occupations do, and found that 45% of all activities could be automated today, like right now. And that only translates, I say, to something like 10% of jobs, uh, because, you know, every, like one has one or two skills that they can bring that a, a robot can't do yet. But I said, basically, you know, this is a trend that's not going away. And we're gonna have to reckon with it soon, sooner rather than later. And this is something that Trump has completely failed to do. And Clinton failed to do it as well. So I mean, it'll be very interesting to see. And this, by the way, this is the first time I've ever, ever heard a capitalist type person bring up the idea of basic income. And he didn't like dwell on it for very long. But he said, this is something we're gonna have to start thinking about. And people are going to have to find other places to get uh, fulfillment out of their lives. Yeah. So, and it's the type of thing where I don't even know that our political system and you know, the media and everything. I don't even know if we're adequately like, like prepared to like have these discussions. Like, like what is like what is the point of life? What what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it is it because you have to? Is it because you love your job? Well, what if you don't have a job? Would that be okay? Would you be okay? Would you as a, you know to be chauvinist as a man? Would you be okay with taking a handout from the government? Basic income. These are all questions that like I never expect to see addressed in any campaign trail. Uh, but these are these are the big. The big sort of strategic questions we, as as human beings on this planet, should be discussing, and and we're just not, and it's kind of dispiriting uh, just to see the rhetoric 
just go out of control. But, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll see if Trump actually closes uh, some trade lines or imposes some tariffs. But uh, he can't stop the overall trends that yeah. we're seeing in technology, uh, you know, around the world. No. It's, 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 it's an inex- inexorable force. Uh, it, will, it will be interesting to see what he does because he did run – you know, he has the power to impose a, up to a 15 percent tariff on pretty much whatever he wants for up to – I believe it's 150 days. Then Congress has to approve it. So he has some power, uh, but that is very much a short-term – like no one's discussing long-term anything in, in, in this country. OK. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. Doom and gloom. <laughs> Sarah Emerson has been covering energy and climate for us for the last couple months, and she's been doing a great job. She ran a story last week called How We're Going to Cover Climate and Energy Under Trump. So I was wondering, how are we going to cover climate and energy under Trump? How is it different than covering it under Obama? Unlike President Obama's administration, as with a lot of issues, Trump hasn't offered too many specifics on the exact types of policies that we're likely to see during his presidency, you know, especially regarding climate and the environment. But what we do know is that he has a really long history of spreading distrust for science, especially climate change science. We have a long list of tweets in which he's called climate change a hoax developed by the Chinese. He has repeatedly tried to debunk global warming based on the observation that winter is cold. And he's also called the Environmental Protection Agency, which does really important things like regulate clean air and clean water. He's called the EPA a, quote, disgrace that he would like to abolish. So it's also important to remember that Trump now, we're looking at a Republican-controlled Congress. So this is something that's likely to weigh heavily in his advantage. Based on all of these things, it's pretty safe to say that the Trump administration is pretty likely to be hostile towards environmental progress. So over the next four years, it's going to be really important, I think, for us to use the tools that have been made available to journalists to sort of check Trump on all of the promises and threats that he's made. This includes FOIA, for example, to see how his administration is exerting its power on other government agencies with regards to their energy agenda. It also includes keeping close tabs on Trump's closest Republican allies in Congress, who probably view these next four years as an opportunity to do things like demolish carbon regulations on coal power plants or, you know, open up public lands to drilling. But most importantly, I'd just like to make sure that we're investigating how Trump's environmental policy changes will impact poor minority and working class communities. These people um, will undoubtedly be affected the most by Trump's sort of stripping away of these regulations and policies. And I think it's really crucial to show how, in some cases, the people that Trump said he would support the most are going to be disproportionately harmed under his administration. Obama had an obstructionist Congress to deal with, and he spent a lot of time using executive orders and his ability to sign treaties to push forward a more progressive climate plan. One of those was the Clean Power Plan. Trump has promised to get rid of that. So what is that and what should we look for there? The Clean Power Plan was one of the Obama administration's most important proposed environmental policies. One of the biggest things the plan would do is regulate and standardize the the levels of carbon emissions that come out of power plants. So 
this would be a really key tool in our nation's ability to lower its overall greenhouse gas emissions. The GOP pretty much across the board hates the clean power plan. They've alleged that it's unconstitutional. In that light, Trump has explicitly vowed to dismantle it. Some experts have sort of speculated that Trump could weaken or rewrite the plan to meet his agenda and preferences, which definitely aren't the same as President Obama's, which were to reduce carbon emissions from these power plants by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. And since we're looking at a Republican-controlled Congress, it's also worth considering that Congress could just pass a bill that simply prevents the EPA, whose transition is, by the way, being overseen by the climate change denier Myron Ebel. It could prevent the EPA from ever limiting carbon emissions during Trump's administration. So there are a few different ways that Trump can keep the clean power plan from ever seeing the light of day. But I think right now, no one's really able to say for sure how he intends to do it. I, I did a small like report card during the campaign about what Trump's energy plans are. And he said that he wants basically more energy. Like that's that's the extent of it. So he said, you know, I want coal, I want natural gas, I want oil, I want solar, I want wind, I want everything. Obviously, coal, oil and natural gas have sort of more environmental implications than solar and wind. So, uh, I mean, do you, do you think that we'll see this sort of like all of the above strategy on, under Trump? Maybe, you know, even President Obama was an advocate for the all of the above strategy, which has been both applauded and derided by environmentalists because some environmentalists criticized Obama for, you know, even including things like fracking and natural gas in his energy plan. They said that, you know, it sort of disincentivized the pursuit of better clean energy alternatives. But Trump's energy plan, I have a quote from it, which is, he promised to unleash America's $50 trillion in untapped shale oil natural gas reserves, plus hundreds of years in clean coal reserves. So obviously something like this was celebrated by the fossil fuel energy. But I think, you know, in regards to Trump's energy promises, it's really important to remember that one of the main components of his energy plan is to revive coal. You know, Trump promised to revive American jobs for coal miners and stimulate the economy through coal. But I mean, even people who are within his same interest just say that's not possible. And you know, it's a promise that he can't keep. The coal economy is failing both domestically and internationally, especially as natural gas becomes cheaper. Investment in coal has gone down. And I think countries, even including the U.S., are embracing cleaner energy alternatives. I think it's pretty safe to say that Trump's vow to working class communities that he went and campaigned on was just completely disingenuous. That's something that came up in uh, another section of this podcast too, uh, uh, the one about trade, where he promised to bring back manufacturing jobs. And the point I made there was that, uh, you know, those jobs aren't coming back anywhere. They're not coming back in China or India, just simply because robots are doing them uh, or starting to do them. And I think you, you see the same like you just mentioned with coal. Coal, is, it's, a, it's our past. It's not our future. And I think that's it's an important to say, like, these are promises he can't keep. He's also talked a lot about clean coal. Um, I think he mentioned that um, in a speech he made to, to uh, you know, coal industry workers. Um, and, you know, clean coal is essentially a technology that captures carbon from coal power plants to, to lower their levels of, uh, of emissions. 
But I mean, one thing that he didn't mention is that it's also incredibly expensive for coal power plants to adopt. Um, it's still an imperfect technology. Um, so, I mean, yeah, a lot of the promises that he's making to these people are just, you know, based on little to no evidence. The Paris Treaty is one of the most important treaties, maybe the most important international treaty regarding climate change ever signed. Can Trump pull us out of it? And what might that mean? The big international climate conference in Morocco right now is meeting. And that's one of the main things on their agenda. So yeah, Trump has has vowed to pull us out of this historic climate treaty. The agreement is now in legal effect, which means that all of the countries that ratified it must now sort of figure out how to reduce their emissions. Um, because the goal of the treaty is to keep global average temperature, you know, well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and eventually prevent an increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So, um, I mean, reports right now are, are indicating that Trump is looking for the quickest and easiest way to pull America out of the Paris Agreement. And a lot of the other member countries are worried because this could mean, you know, that other countries who ratified the agreement would feel less motivated to meet their own goals or, um, I don't know, it just puts, you know, more of the burden on, on other countries, especially ones that are, that are developing, um, but yeah, I mean, everyone's still speculating as to whether he can actually do this. Um, but as some people have noted, um, the Paris Agreement actually includes this withdrawal clause that enforces a three-year wait time after the agreement goes into effect before countries are able to pull out. And even then, it would take a year to actually fully uh, withdraw. So I think it's safe to say that within Trump's actual four-year term, we won't see the U.S. officially out of the Paris Agreement. Um, but, I mean, obviously, thing, you know, his threats are already upsetting the international community. Like, you know, the former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, you know, who floated the idea of carbon taxes on American products. Um, I mean, it, it's still unclear right now how Trump plans to answer um, all of the concerns of other countries. But um, I don't know. Maybe he'll respond better to economic threats if not, you know, ones to the future of all life on Earth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, that they that it will take four years, and maybe you know, if he does try to pull out, we'll actually see questions about climate change on the debates for three, I guess, three years from now, when you know we start seeing the 2020 campaign, which is a huge failure of the sort of debate circuit this year. That that it didn't even really come up. In the campaign season, I mean, everyone was sort of writing the stories, you know, that climate would be the key issue of this presidential election, and it never was. Um, I mean, I think the closest we ever came to actually talking about climate was the question from Ken Bone, Ken Bone yeah. which wasn't <laughs> even about climate. I mean, it was about energy, which is, you know, a key component of like how we're going to fight climate change. But I mean, our candidates were never forced to say, you know, on the debate stage, you know, do you believe in climate science? Um, what do you intend to do about climate change? And, you know, what do you think humans role has been in causing it? Um, so yeah, I mean, that would be a really, you know, uh, that would be a silver lining to the next four years as if, you know, our next election was actually based on, on issues that are, you know, less immediate, but definitely more important than, you know, things that we always talk about 
on the debate stage, like, you know, national security or, um, you know, the economy, or in this case, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails. Right. One thing I want to briefly mention as well is that uh, there's renewed hope from the fossil fuel industry that uh, Trump administration will uh, approve the Keystone XL pipeline um, that President Obama killed. Uh, so look for that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if Trump has talked about it yet. All indications suggest that he supports it, and Republican Congress certainly supports it. So uh, look look for that, I guess. I have contributor Madison Margolin with us, and we're going to talk about Trump's powers when it comes to regulating marijuana. We have how many states? Four states? Five states with legal weed? Or did just California? We're utilize? adding four more to the four that were already distinct. We have Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Alaska, California, Nevada, Massachusetts, and Maine, and plus DC. Now we have a sizable chunk of the country that has legalized recreational weed. Marijuana is still federally illegal, but under Obama, the Department of Justice has decided not to pursue companies and users that are operating or using marijuana or selling it under state law, correct? Yeah, that that decision was made. I mean, there still have been federal cases and there has been some federal interference. But overall, the idea is that if you're compliant under state law, you're, you should be fairly safe. But like, again, on individual bases, that's sometimes a little shaky. Has there been any indication from the Trump campaign or transition team that that might change under his direction? Basically, Trump himself has um, said that he respects states' rights to Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everybody else respects states' rights to do what they want um, with cannabis law. Um, so, you know, that, I mean, Trump also kind of, you can't always trust what he says. Um, that being said, it depends also who he puts in as attorney general. So before he was considering Chris Christie, who was, um, that he doesn't, he doesn't really care that much about states' rights. Um, and now he's considering, I think, Giuliani, um, who might be a little bit better. Um, he's more, um, he was in the stop and frisk in New York, so he's more of a racist um, than a prohibitionist. Um, that being said, the two sort of go hand in hand, um, you know, since a lot of um, drug laws are disproportionately um, enforced among minorities. Uh, so basically, who is at the head of um, Justice Department and Attorney General um, will sort of dictate the way the feds kind of interact with the green states. Um, and so they could be a little bit more at risk than they would have been under Hillary, who had said she would want to reschedule uh, marijuana to schedule two. How does a drug actually get rescheduled? Because it's obviously not the president can't just wave his or her hand and, and make it so... So as my understanding, and I, you know, I also need to read up on this a little bit more, is that um, like Hillary had said she would have rescheduled. Um, and, you know, that probably could have been a, a reality um, if she had one. But um, it's not that the president can just, you know, 
with the stroke of their pen, just reschedule candidates to schedule two, but they'd have to go through um, a number of agencies and Congress and sort of direct the right people um, to do that. Um, and I know also the DEA over the summer said that they would not, um, they would not reschedule, but um, it's again, like it's sort of this complicated relationship between the different government agencies and powers that be. And, you know, even if one, it, the DEA is not really in like a, um, like a lawmaking uh, capacity as far as I understand it. So again, they're in somewhat of an enforcement capacity, but there's to also be taking orders um, from above. Um, so again, right now, with Trump's administration, he's probably, obviously he wouldn't, I mean, obviously, I don't think he would reschedule. Um, and I think whoever he puts um, in senior law enforcement positions would probably not be as friendly as um, if they were a Democratic administration. Um, that being said, also, there are federal um, bills that are pending, such as the CARES Act, which also would have rescheduled cannabis to Schedule Two, and would have cleared up some banking issues and made university research, um, you know, easier to to execute. But now I think that uh, because also we have a Republican majority and um, a lot of the people who are reelected aren't particularly friendly to marijuana reform, um, I'm not super positive that the CARES Act is going to get through the um, Congress anytime soon. I, I just want to quickly talk about uh, the Cole memo, which was a memo put out uh, in 2013 that basically said the Department of Justice and U.S. attorneys should not, uh, you know, go after people in the marijuana industry. What is that memo and uh, does it hold any force under a Trump administration? The memo, essentially, as you explained it, uh, people who are compliant under state law should technically be protected from federal interference. Um, It should also have uh, cleared up, you know, made it possible for people who are banking to sort of not have to worry again about federal um, backlash, um, again, if you're compliant. Uh, with that said, you know, this was under Obama's administration. There has still been, in spite of the Colmembo, in, in spite of the Colmembo, I still have heard of cases in which the federal government has interfered. Um, so again, it's sort of on a state-by-state basis. Also, a memo is just a memo. It sort of doesn't really hold the weight or power that actual legislation would. Um, and so I don't really think that um, it's going to be a sort of a forceful, it's not going to be particularly forceful under a Trump administration um, unless they choose right. to respect it or continue with that sort of mentality. I think well, I think it's important, uh, someone from Amanda Ryman, who's the uh, marijuana law and policy manager from the DPA, has sort of pointed out um, that uh, it's important for, um, it's important that California won because now we have an extra 55 seats in Congress, so 53 in their House and another two obviously in the Senate, um, who are representing a state that's green. And it's that's a huge chunk of, of legislators who are technically are supposed to rep- be representing people who voted in favor of legal weed, um, and so you know with potential federal backlash um, or crackdown, rather uh, having sort of a buffer like California, you know, as protection um, for all these other smaller states that have legalized. I think you know the weight of California really says a lot. It's a super powerful state. Um, it's obviously the, probably the most powerful state to have legalized, and so um, it sends a strong message and sort of solidifies the message that other states have already sort of been 
putting out as far as legalization. That's a great point. I have Joseph Cox, our excellent security, privacy, hacking, etc. reporter. So we're about to hand the keys to the surveillance apparatus to Donald J. Trump. How should we feel? Uh, terrified? No. I mean, so the real nightmare scenario that a lot of people have been um, concerned about is that he's going to turn this, what is one of the world's most powerful, if not the most powerful intelligence agency on the planet into his personal uh, spying machine, which you can understand why people would think that, but it turns out from former NSA and then lawyers I spoke to, it's not that simple. I mean, he can't just tell the NSA to target a specific American citizen, even though foreigners uh, aren't held up to the same standards. Um, there is real power, though, with Trump to shake things up. He could put someone else in charge. He could introduce new executive orders that would change uh, surveillance uh, legislation. Or he could... Um, really push a different emphasis for the agency and really shift it in another direction. He hasn't said too much about how he plans on using the NSA's power just simply because the election didn't focus on issues like privacy. Do we have any inkling of where he might go with this? Uh, who is who is he surrounded himself with? Like, who are his advisors who are going to, to lead this, or do we have any idea? Well, there's Flynn, I believe, who has been more aggressive when it comes to the rhetoric around hacking capabilities and the cybers. Um, <laughs> and Trump himself has saying, the U.S. is failing at cyber, we're an embarrassment, etc. So one former NSA researcher I spoke to said that Trump could be more aggressive, not specifically with the NSA, but more with hacking capabilities in general. He could be more on the offensive. So maybe he'll pour more money into um, Cybercom, which is sort of the U.S. Army military side of uh, intelligence and hacking. That really could become a much bigger deal under a Trump uh, presidency. It's interesting that he says, uh, you know, we're falling behind the cybers simply because you know, we've had we've seen things like Stuxnet and the NSA obviously seems to have a backdoor into everything. And so it'll be interesting to see. Well, A, who knows how much of it we'll see. And B, from what we know, it seems as though the FBI and NSA are quite active in hacking other entities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the FBI and the DOJ is what you really need to worry about under a Trump uh, presidency rather than this uh, for, uh, intelligence agency that's primarily focused on foreign collection. I mean, even Trump isn't, isn't going to want to get in the way of the NSA. I mean, they're doing their job. When it comes to the FBI and DOJ, maybe there's more leverage for his manipulation or his own machinations. Um, but then talking specifically about backdoors, I mean, during the Apple and the San Bernardino case, Trump was saying that we should boycott Apple and who do they think they are? So in the broader context of the crypto wars, and especially this um, theme around end-to-end -end encryption, hard drive encryption, and uh, forced uh, decrypt of those devices, Trump could be much more on the law enforcement side than um, Silicon Valley. So how Trump-proof is the surveillance apparatus? We passed the USA Freedom Act last year, which wasn't as strong NSA reform, but it was something. 
did that really curtail the NSA's spying abilities? Well, I mean, when it comes to Trump and his control over the NSA, I mean, for the really egregious stuff, for the really drastic changes, uh, Bradley P. Moss, who's a national security attorney who represents uh, the intelligence community uh, and its employees, he said that there's too many bureaucratic and institutional barriers to um, immediately sort of shake this stuff up. I mean, it is there to try to limit some of the more crazy ideas that might come from political uh, appointee. So you can't just go around willy-nilly scrapping the entire thing. But there is wiggle room. And, I mean, I'm not exactly sure the uh, US Freedom Act, but again, with the executive orders, you can wiggle uh, in that space, even around the NSA uh, surveillance. And then when it comes to going back on changes that we've made and progress that we've made, uh, Moss was particularly worried about the protections around legal whistleblowers, the ones who actually put up their hand and say, hey, there's something wrong here, especially with Trump's love of secrecy. Moss was worried that this may, not in legislation, but more internally, lead to a culture of, hey, I'm not going to put my hand up because I'm going to really get fired or the hammer's going to clamp down on me especially in this Trump uh, presidency. The last thing I want to talk about is the crypto wars. How Trump-proof is our encryption protocols? Um, It seems to me as though that's a cat you can't really put back in the bag if we aren't using a Silicon Valley-based encryption protocol. We'll use one based overseas, but maybe uh, I'm naive here. As we know, the crypto wars most recently was faced on a ancient statute, the All Rights Act, and then that was used in an attempt to uh, undermine Apple's encryption. I mean, the fact that that still exists and the fact that the DOJ tried that in the first place and ultimately failed, I mean, there's plenty of room for another attack, and then especially with a president and administration and then generally a country that's more leaning towards law enforcement access. I think under a Trump presidency, there's definitely room for another substantial attack in the crypto wars and one that might be more successful than the uh, Apple San Bernardino case. I know that after Trump was elected, I sort of did a security audit of myself and sort of made sure I was using as much encrypted communication as possible. Uh, You've done a lot of uh, sort of service work for us saying, you know, here's how to protect yourself online. Do you have any quick tips for people who want to make sure that they are protecting themselves as best they can. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guides have popped up in the past few days after the Trump presidency saying, hey, you should use Signal, you should use Tor, maybe PGP email. I mean, that's all fine and good, uh, but I don't think there's going to be much difference when it comes to the mass surveillance capabilities under a Trump presidency. So what people really should worry about is what Trump has demonstrated, which is his love of litigation. If you're a journalist, maybe if you're an activist, I think the threat model has dramatically changed now that you might have to go to court much more than under the previous administration. Uh, He's already said that he's going to sue women that spoke out against him. He's spoken specifically and called out journalists. I think now, rather than just using encryption, journalists should prepare if they're going to be very um, against Trump and adversarial against Trump, they should prepare to have to fight lawsuits against their stories and they should take security precautions uh, with that in mind. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you so much.
I have Motherboard correspondent Sam Gustin here. He covers the FCC and broadband access and competition, net neutrality type issues. Thanks for coming, Sam. Thanks, Jason. Sam, you've been covering the intricacies of the FCC's net neutrality battles and various broadband access, municipal fiber type of things. What does the FCC look like under Trump? Well, I think the most important thing is that a lot of the pro-consumer policies that have been enacted under current FCC chairman Tom Wheeler are in jeopardy and at risk. The biggest thing is, of course, the open internet order, which protects net neutrality. It's very hard to evaluate Trump's positions on a lot of tech policy and telecom policy issues. He didn't really talk about them that much on the campaign trail, but he did tweet uh, about how net neutrality was some Obama power grab, and he bizarrely compared it to the Fairness Doctrine, which was, of course, this decades-old, long-abandoned FCC policy that required media outlets to provide equal time for opposing viewpoints. Net neutrality has nothing to do with the Fairness Doctrine, but In any event, Trump made clear that he's not a fan of net neutrality, so it's very likely that under a Trump FCC, um, we can expect the open internet order protecting net neutrality to be overturned. We can also expect the FCC's recent broadband privacy policy to likely be overturned. And the, the kind of big picture here is that Trump is likely to favor policies and Trump's appointees are likely to favor policies that benefit corporations, big phone companies, cable companies, um, as opposed to the more consumer orientation that existed under current chairman FCC, uh, current FCC chairman Wheeler. That's an important point because Trump has said that he wants to kind of do away with as much regulation as possible and the telecom industry is one that's kind of in desperate need of regulation in terms of promoting competition and, and things like that. Uh, in terms of things like municipal fiber, which is something I've been writing a lot about, can we expect to see more hurdles for cities that want to build municipal fiber networks? That, that's mostly happening at a state level, those, those hurdles, but I'm not sure whether that might be affected by Yeah, Trump. I mean, I think it's that the current FCC under Chairman Wheeler had really been trying to encourage competition and encourage uh, community broadband and municipal broadband. Unfortunately, a couple of months ago, they lost a very important case in federal court that essentially uh, kneecapped their ability to promote municipal broadband. So at this point, there's really not much that the FCC can do from a legal and policy perspective. I think the bigger picture more generally is that under a Trump administration, the role and power of corporate interests across the country is going to be magnified. So I think, for example, in states, you'll have corporate lobbyists. And Jason, you've been writing about this, you know, for years, you know, as well as I do, that um, a lot of these anti-municipal broadband laws in was it 20 odd states were essentially pushed by corporate lobbyists. So to the extent that the overall regulatory atmosphere is more favorable to corporate interests and business interests, um, we can expect 
those interests to be emboldened to the detriment of community broadband efforts. One thing Trump has said, and Clinton said something to this effect as well, is that he wants to really double down on infrastructure investment. And it's it's unclear whether he considers fiber or internet infrastructure to even be infrastructure. I think we all like our governments to consider internet access to be sort of on the same level as roads and bridges, et cetera. But is there any hope there that maybe we'll get some subsidies or something like that? Well, this is, this is actually a, an interesting issue that a lot of people are talking about right now. Um, Trump has come out with the vague promise of a $1 trillion infrastructure spending plan. But as far as we understand, he's not talking about the federal government spending $1 trillion on infrastructure. And he's certainly not talking about raising the taxes that would be necessary to pay for the $1 trillion on infrastructure. What he's talking about is offering businesses and corporations tax breaks and incentives to motivate them to build out to build out infrastructure. So, for example, he might say to Comcast or AT&T or Verizon, I'll give you a, you know, whatever, $10 billion tax credit if you will, you know, lay fiber in these cities. It's not even public investment. It's basically a way to try to incentivize private infrastructure spending. And so just to be very, very clear about his infrastructure plan, this is not like a FDR style, New Deal style, you know, we're going to spend a trillion dollars public money to, you know, ensure everyone has, you know, gigabit fiber. It's more like we're going to give corporations tax credits in the hope that they will do the infrastructure spending and the infrastructure building. And that's sort of like classic conservative sort of uh, how, how the government should be used. It's like the government should incentivize private companies to help out the free market rather than place restrictions on them. And that's sort of the argument that telecoms trade groups have made. But, you know, telecoms trade groups have set up an environment that's hugely anti-competitive throughout the country. So, And not only, and not only that, I mean, there's simply no guarantee that these private companies will follow through. Like Verizon in New York is a great example. The city of New York gave Verizon a contract and a franchise agreement uh, for them to deliver Fios to every residence in New York City. Verizon has failed to do that. The city of New York is pursuing legal action against Verizon. So the point is that it's sort of a philosophical difference, right? In other countries, the government says, you know what? Um, Communications infrastructure is extremely important, and we're simply going to build it, like South Korea, countries in Scandinavia, et cetera. So that's one model of infrastructure spending. Another model is kind of the conservative free market model that I think you're going to see under um, under President Trump. All right. Thank you so much, Sam. It was great. Thanks, Jason. I'm here with Ankita Rao, who you probably remember from previous episodes of the podcast, and she's going to talk to us about how health and Obamacare might be influenced by a Trump administration. This is This is something that's been talked about the most. It's like Obamacare is dead and abortions are going to be illegal soon. So uh, tell me the truth. (laughs) Okay. Well, first of all, nobody knows the truth, including probably Donald Trump. So I think that that's a good place to start. Republicans have tried 
some Republicans, I should say, have tried to repeal Obamacare now more than 60 times. So I think that this was a campaign promise that they really hoped that Trump would carry out. Now, Trump, after speaking to President Obama, has already kind of changed his tune on this. On Donald Trump's website throughout the campaign, he actually had a a pure sort of free market health plan that he wanted to implement, which basically says insurance companies just compete to get customers and no one would actually be required to get health care. The problem with that is that a lot of young, healthy people don't need or don't think they need health care, which is the reason that Obamacare was kind of put in place uh, to change that whole risk pool problem and just make it so that with more players in the healthcare game, nobody would be paying exorbitant amounts. Of course, that isn't how it's worked out so far. Anyway, so Trump went back and said, there are parts of Obamacare that I would want to keep. I would want to keep the parts that said um, kids could stay on their parents' plan until they were 26. And I'd want to keep the part that said that people with pre-existing conditions, which is any chronic or debilitating disease, um, couldn't be... uh, like insurance companies couldn't turn them away from healthcare or charge them more. And as soon as he said that, I think everyone was sort of shocked. I'm not sure that Democrats or Obamacare advocates think that's necessarily a good thing because it's not the part of Obamacare that is the most important to retain. And then I think Republicans just freaked out because obviously they didn't want it at all and wanted to start from scratch. So that's the main gist of what we know so far. We have no idea how that'll play out, though. Right. And there's also a a big – the free contraception is certainly at risk with a conservative Congress and a conservative – well – a Republican president. We don't know if he's going to be conservative mm-hmm. or not or what, or what he's going to be like. But um, tell me a little bit about that. Donald Trump so far has talked about overturning Roe versus Wade, which was the Supreme Court case that decided that abortions should be legal in this country. And he actually, he kind of said it differently than that in itself would entail. He just said that states should have the choice to decide whether or not this should be legal, which They almost already do. I mean, if you look at abortion laws across the country, they're extremely different, and it's much harder to get an abortion in Mississippi than it is in New York, even though Roe versus Wade is there. But either way, it's extremely, extremely concerning and probably a huge threat not only to contraception, but for abortion doctors, there's probably going to be more illegal abortions if that happens, more unsafe abortions if that happens. It would be a huge, huge step backwards. And you can tell because people are everywhere from women who are like trying to get IUDs put in so that they are safe for the next five years, safe, quote unquote, uh, for the next five years. And then people funding or like donating to Planned Parenthood to try to make sure this doesn't happen. But yeah, under Obamacare, contraception is currently free and accessible. And so anything that damages that or threatens that is definitely going to be a big problem. One of my close friends has worked with various pro-choice organizations, and she told me that the bigger fear here is that Republicans now control both houses and they have the presidency. So she was really hoping that the Democrats would take back the Senate, which obviously didn't happen. And she suggested that that's sort of the bigger fear here is that we now have a conservative legislative branch that can sort of run wild with its proposals. Would you agree with that or not? Yeah, I mean, of course. I think, I mean, yeah, I think that at the end of the day, the lawmakers that are working under Donald Trump are probably way more 
dangerous, I guess, in in terms of this issue, then he is. And, I mean, if you have someone like Mike Pence right under him who, like, clearly does not support open access to contraception or abortions and has never voted for any of that, that's kind of what we're looking at, and that could happen to a lot more places. Yeah, Trump's stance on abortion has been all over the place, whereas, like, Pence and, you know, a Republican Congress has not. So that's... Trump is not a conservative, right? Like, we don't know what he is. And I don't know that he is aware exactly, (laughs) like, of how even those laws work yet. So I think your friend is completely correct. And if he hands over those powers to states, states will do absolutely anything they want, which is the bigger issue. Is there anything else we should talk about in the wide umbrella that is health? I think the only thing, and this is another thing that we don't know what's going to happen, is we need to just pay attention to drug prices and see what happens because it's really hard to tell, but the markets are constantly changing and if our access to insurance changes, our drug prices are going to change too. So just something to pay attention to. Okay. Thank you, Ankita. I have Kate Lunau, our Canadian editor, on the line. And you guys kind of went through a, not a Trump-like presidency or prime ministry, <laughs> um, but with Stephen Harper, <laughs> you guys saw uh, what can happen under sort of an anti-science government. And all indications sort of suggest that perhaps Trump is anti-science, considering he called climate change a conspiracy by the Chinese. What did you guys see under Harper, and should America fear sort of a brain drain of of our scientists or roadblocks for our scientists. For starters, one of the challenges right now in talking about Trump is that nobody really knows exactly what he's going to do. He's sort of a wild card. And Stephen Harper, who was our prime minister, was anything but a wild card in a lot of ways. He was extremely predictable. But one of the most uh, troublesome things that happened with science under his watch was that scientists were basically told not to speak to the media, those that worked in government. So for me, working as a journalist, I'd be trying to contact someone at a government department to talk about a health concern or an environmental concern, and you would just get shut out. And it was so frustrating. And, you know, scientists talked about feeling frustrated, too, because here's all this great research that they want to tell the public about, and they were just encountering roadblocks in the form of media relations departments and communications people just shutting down these requests. I think a bigger thing we've dealt with in Canada really for years and years is the issue of a brain drain. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it was sort of an anti-science feeling under Harper. But part of it, honestly, is that you guys are a lot bigger than us. There's more money in the U.S. You know, there's more funding for research. Uh, there's a lot more going on. Canada population is California. You're just a bigger country with more resources. So we've had a brain drain here for years and years where a lot of our best and brightest have headed south. And it's definitely a problem. I mean, it was one of the first things that jumped out at me when Trump won. And I was hearing from scientists here saying, we're we're getting emails from people that are worried in the US and they're wondering about coming north. So it got me wondering if the brain drain, you know, might reverse. Yeah. And that's an interesting point. I mean, there's sort of this stereotypical thing that people say, oh, if so-and-so wins, I'm moving to Canada. And we saw this phenomenon where the, the Canadian immigration site went down while the election results are rolling in. That's not to say that people are going to leave the U.S. and it's not like, you know, just anyone can go to Canada. But traditionally, people 
who are smart, highly skilled workers can immigrate more easily. So is it easier for, say, a scientist to move to Canada than a manufacturing worker or what? Well, I think what's interesting is, you know, we're talking about brain drain and Canada has now starting to do a lot to reverse the brain drain and draw more talented immigrants here. Um, One of the things is that tech startups here have been saying we need more skilled workers. So Canada actually just announced some measures to make it easier for these skilled people to come here and work, including at tech startups. So you are seeing that uh, more and more. And meanwhile, you know, even before Trump was elected, there was a prediction that um, the U.S. would be seen as sort of less hospitable to immigrants, including skilled immigrants. So Canada might become more of a draw. So while it's impossible to say exactly what's happening under Trump, what I'm hearing from scientists here and from tech startups is that they're getting more interest from the U.S. And that interest here, honestly, is welcome. People are saying, you know, bring it on. We've lost a lot of talent to the U.S. and maybe it's time to suck some of that talent back up to Canada. We've got staff writer Kaylee Rogers here to talk about vaping, the issue of our time. No, I I think that this is important because vapors have felt very left out during this election cycle, and uh, there's some optimism from them, correct? Yeah, so it depends who you talk to. But overall, vapors were hoping to hear from either of the candidates some kind of acknowledgement that they're facing a lot of regulatory issues and coming down on the problem one way or the other, and neither candidate did. So they weren't really that hopeful. Once it was clear that Trump was our new president-elect, they started sort of thinking about it and looking at the fact that Congress is now a Republican majority and sort of this air of anti-regulation that's coming in and feeling a little more hopeful that maybe we have a few options here. Not to go deep into it, but what regulations are they talking about? Like there's a new FDA regulations put in place earlier this year, correct? Those came out earlier this year. They'll be fully in effect by 2018. And the biggest problem is that it has a portion of the regulations that basically requires every vaping business in the country to fill out these forms and and do this application process that's very expensive, like hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars for every product they make, every product they sell. It's this huge hurdle that they have to pass. And since a lot of these are small businesses, they're saying, we can't afford to do this. We're just going to end up going out of business. Right. And the only ones that can afford it are big tobacco. Exactly. So big tobacco often is manufacturing vape products as well. They can afford to do this stuff because it's big tobacco. Right. So the hope here is that his FDA will roll back the regulations, correct? Or, or maybe some Congress will do something? What, what is the hope? There's a few hopes. So one of the most basic things, which they've already been sort of working on, is changing a date in these regulations that would basically grandfather in all the businesses that are already there so they don't have to go through this huge process of applying. Beyond that, they're hoping maybe this regulation could just be scrapped entirely. There's a chance Congress could decide to do that, although it's kind of rare. And the other option is that they would build a completely new framework of regulation specifically for vaping. So a lot of people in the vaping industry aren't against regulations. Like they don't want kids using these products or anything like that, but they just want it to function in a way that's separate from tobacco because there's no tobacco actually in these products. It's nicotine. And is 
addressing the problems that are specific to this industry and not lumping them in with cigarettes, which they're trying to distance themselves from. I have not fact-checked this at all, but someone the other day told me that Mike Pence is a cigarette truther. He doesn't believe it causes cancer. I don't know if that's true or not. (laughs) I don't know about that, but I do know that Mike Pence is not well-liked within the vaping community because as governor of Indiana, he had some of the harshest state-level regulations on vaping in the country. So that is sort of tempering this optimism to a certain extent. My story on this was posted on the vaping subreddit, and a lot of them were pointing that out. They're like, but Mike Pence is going to be the VP, and he's no friend to us. So there's still a little concern there, some sort of cautious optimism, I guess. Okay, thank you so much, Kelly. I have our UK staff writer, Ben Sullivan, on the line. Hi, Ben. Hi. Hi, Jason. Hey, uh, you wrote an excellent article about how Trump might use drones in the war on terror. Throughout his campaign, Trump said, you know, he might want to kill terrorist families and things like that. And presumably he might, uh, you know, want to use drones there. Should we be concerned that Trump will now be in charge of a wide-sweeping CIA drone strike program. Yeah, I mean I guess that that is the worry but the, the problem is and the problem that sort of analysts and experts have had is that there literally is no concrete information about uh, what Trump plans with, with, with the drone strikes. I mean, it's, it's quite surprising actually despite sort of the American public's perceived importance on uh, drone strikes against ISIS along with Trump's sort of anti-ISIS rhetoric, it's just he, he has said very little about uh, about drones. Um, obviously, he's going to in- inherit the the whole program from Obama, who who expanded it uh, significantly. Um, but there, there really is nothing to say which way he's going to go. And and, uh, and and like most of his campaign, it's it's littered with inconsistencies. I mean, last year with Fox News, he was saying how, you know, like you mentioned, he he wanted to expand bombing ISIS to bombing entire families or or bombing entire community uh, communities um, and then this year they sort of dialed back on that and said actually no we, we prefer to capture and interrogate terrorists rather than bomb them so so yeah it's it's very tricky at the moment to see what's, what's going to be happening in, in January. Like you said there's not a lot to go on from what Trump himself has said but we can maybe uh, make some prognostications based on the people he surrounded himself with so uh, tell me a little bit about Michael Flynn, who uh, is one of his advisors. Yeah, Michael Flynn. So, I mean, Michael Flynn is a, is a retired sort of, uh, yeah, well, he is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant. Um, an interesting one, he, he used to serve under Obama um, on the Defense Intelligence Agency from 2012 to 2014 and, and he was a registered Democrat um, uh, and he retired and is now uh, throughout Trump's campaign has moved into more of an advisory role for Trump and actually spoke at one of Trump's rallies um, and he was very involved in Obama's drone program uh, and is now sort of uh, helping well I suppose he will be helping Trump um, with, with, with drones in the Middle East the, the interesting interesting thing about Michael Flynn is that last year with Al Jazeera, he said publicly that um, drone strikes simply aren't working. Drone strikes played a large role in creating ISIS. Uh, and now he's sort of gone back on that and uh, it, 
yeah, it's a very hawkish guy, I guess. Uh, uh, Michael Flynn said uh, to quote him, "When you drop a bomb from a drone, you're going to cause more damage than you're going to cause good." Um, and now it's looking like Flynn will be one of the, the top guys in charge of the, of the drone program come January. So, again, who knows what's going to happen? It's, it's very inconsistent. What is the general tenor uh, in DC right now? I, I know you're in UK, but you talk to a lot of people for this article who are based in DC, or at least monitoring what's going on in DC. I mean, are they concerned that we really have no idea what this guy is going to do on, on matters of defense like this? Yeah, I mean, uh, I spoke to Dan Gettinger, who's um, an analyst and researcher at uh, Bard College's Centre for the Study of the Drone. Um, and so they've been monitoring this campaign for the last 12 months and have sort of put out a few reports on both Clinton's and Trump's uh, stance on, on drone strikes. Uh, and while we had lots to go on for Clinton, mainly because she was Secretary of State, she would have echoed Obama's policies, um, they simply do not know what, what Trump is, is planning. Um, and I think it comes down to more, more the fact that Trump simply hasn't thought about it. Um, so, yeah, it's not, it's not so much worry because, obviously, he can't go off on a, on a mad one uh, after the inauguration because there's systems in place. He, he has his administration, administration around him to stop that happening but yeah there's just nothing nothing to, to go on and it's interesting you say that though because uh, you know we got the sense that obviously the drone program wasn't Obama's but he expanded in a big way and he's the one who sort of signed off on the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki who is a U.S. citizen, sort of the, this uh, killing without due process um, in Afghanistan. And it seems like the drone program is something that the president himself has a lot of control over. So obviously he'll, he'll sort of like surround himself with you know people to advise him, but it seems like he, he may have wide latitude to do what he sort of wants here. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the danger, I guess, for, for a lot of people with Obama's drone program went further than than some people would have uh, predicted in 2008 and then 2012 so so yeah you're right it's it's he could continue to expand this um, and I think it's, it's likely to happen as well because of his you know, anti-terror um, campaign focus I think yeah it's, it's just going to continue to, to be an issue and it's going to continue to drone strike in Yemen, Somalia you know, the Middle East Right, I, I just want to touch on this quickly um, you mentioned in your article as well that, uh, you know, we do have surveillance drones in the United States as well along both the American-Mexican and American-Canadian uh, border, they're unarmed predators um, and, you know, this is run under the Department of Homeland Security uh, would you expect to see that program expanded under Trump? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the few um, concrete uh, um, concrete things we do know about Trump on drones. That he, he said at multiple rallies that um, he wants the Department of Homeland Security's border patrols to, to be boosted by more drones. Um, the, the border patrols themselves have asked for, for more um, reaper front to be drone and yeah Trump Trump has said that he, he wants to expand this despite the, I mean there's numerous reports there's, there's a report from the DHS themselves saying that it's it's a costly program it doesn't really work 
um, at the moment. It's, it's, it's not effective having all these drones patrolling the borders. Yet, again, this was such a massive part of Trump's campaign that it, it only sort of leaves... Uh, I guess, yeah, it's, it's going to increase. Right, yeah, I, I want to jump in here and just say, uh, you know, two years ago I went to North Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota, where they actually fly. There's a um, there's Grand Forks Air Force bases where... Uh, you know, they fly the Predator drones out of. Um, so I saw their command centers and everything and talked to people at DHS. And this is not an effective program whatsoever. Um, like you said, there's been a couple uh, oversight reports suggesting that uh, it's a huge waste of money. A lot of these drones sit on the ground for, you know, far too long. They they haven't been using the drones that they've had. But, uh, you know, as as you said, they, they still want more drones because, you know, if you don't spend your budget, you lose it. So uh, yeah. this is this has been one of the few sort of border control me- uh, mechanisms that hasn't been effective at all. So uh, it'll be interesting to see whether whether they actually try to, to expand it because it's been kind of an unmitigated mess yeah. since they've... I mean, like, a report came out last year claiming that um, each each apprehension of um, someone trying to get into the US illegally that was aided by a drone cost you know towards $30,000 which is just uh, it's so ineffective um, one thing I do want to point out is that we could also see the increase of, of okay. using um, these domestic drones for, for natural disasters. Um, that I guess if that is one sort of uh, good point that could come out of um, boosting drone budget domestically, is that when we have hurricanes or fires or anything, we, we, you know, the US could have more drones in the sky to help with finding survivors, um, you know, analysing disaster zones. Right, right. I mean, yeah, there, there's two sides of the coin for sure. Um, and, and I will mention that in a few instances, local police have called on DHS to use predator drones in cases of uh, like criminal, you know, searches. So, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a concern as well. Do we want predator drones searching, you know, the backyards of of our citizens? And that's only happened in like one or two instances so far. But it, it is a scary proposition yeah yeah I, and, and without being um without donning my my tinfoil hat from becoming a conspiracist but you know one minute it's uh drones patrolling the borders and then where does it stop does it you know it's drones patrolling the the entire state and then drones patrolling the entire country because of the nature of these drones there's just there's just no uh, set precedent you know of, of how they're being used so yeah something to watch out for there's a whole bunch of uh, you know um, alarmist conspiracy theories about domestic drone use online if you want to dig in <laughs> dig into that and get crazy right 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 all right ben thank you so much this was uh, this is great no worries thank you so much for listening to this extra long episode. I am Jason Kebler. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.